A reading from Philippians 2, 12 through 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that uh, by it today we would be conformed more and more to Christ, to his pattern. Help us to, to love and to serve and to give of ourselves uh, as he has given of himself to us and made us your own. And it's in Jesus' name and in the power of the Spirit we pray. Amen. Uh, I think we all know that we are supposed to work out, that that is a good thing when we go to the gym, when we go out and exercise. But uh, I think sometimes we also look for reasons not to. Uh, this past week, I got in the car to go to a class at the gym, and they're very strict about the time frame. And I had forgotten that my car was out of gas. <laughs> and so I couldn't go, and it was like, oh, I can't go. But there was a part of me that was like, I can't go. I don't have to go. I had a reason for skipping working out. Well, Philippians tells us that we have no reason or justification for skipping out on working out. And of course, Paul is not speaking here about physical fitness. He is talking about our spiritual fitness. We must work out our spiritual union with Christ who did not hold on to his position or his right or his prerogative, but gave up those things in the incarnation. Prompting one pastor to say that the incarnation is inconceivable unless it really happened. In other words, who, who would have made this up? This is from God. And we saw last week, or in the earlier verses of Philippians 2, that the pre-incarnate one, what did he do? He disadvantaged himself. And because he obeyed, since he obeyed, sacrificing himself, God exalted him and gave him the place of honor at God the Father's right hand, receiving him back to that place of honor, giving him that position it was rightfully his. And Paul ended that section, verse 11, by saying basically that everyone will bow to Christ someday, whether willingly or unwillingly, joyfully or miserably. Christ is Lord and all will recognize this. And today's section begins with therefore. Therefore is the 
connective tissue, the link between the true story and the count of Christ that goes then into application, what we are supposed to do in light of this true account. We are to apply Christ's humble self-emptying in our lives, in our fellowship, in our families, at work, and so forth. Paul says that because the Son of God, who is in the very form of God, who shares the very nature of the Father, because he, again, gave up his status and rights and position to become a cross-bearing servant, we are to, therefore, pattern our lives after him. Paul, as he speaks to the Philippians, he calls them my beloved. What a beautiful phrase. They are his friends. He says later in uh, chapter 4, my brothers and sisters whom I love and long for, he is separated from them physically, but he is connected to them with the tissues, if you will, of their union in Christ together. And he says here in our section, just as you have always obeyed in my presence, but now also in my absence, so keep obeying. So Paul knows the influence that he has had on the unique apostle, the one who was sent out to the Gentiles to give them the gospel. He knows about his influence, and he longs to see them continue in their walk with Christ, whether he's with them or not. And so we see indirectly then Paul's influence on us, right? He's not with us, but this letter is with us. And uh, we are to follow God in the light of what is said here through the apostles. So we're going to look at what we do, how we do it, and why we do it. What we do, how we do it, and why we do it. Paul says what we do is, friends, we work out our salvation. Now, my wife mentioned you might want to say we work out our own salvation, not someone else's, not our spouse's salvation, uh, not the person sitting next to us in church. We work out our own. And we do this because God has planted in us the soil of the gospel. He, rather, he's planted us in the soil of the gospel to produce the fruit of righteousness, of Christ-likeness. And so Paul is saying, therefore, keep applying this saving activity of God in your life. You see, salvation is not so much an objective for which we're reaching out, right, trying to achieve something, but it's already been achieved for us. And so Paul is saying, this is your possession, because God has made you his possession and he's gifted salvation to you and therefore you grow up into your salvation. You become what you are. You can think of it this way when, and all analogies are imperfect, but when two people get married, marriage confirms, confirms on that couple that there is a status of oneness, a status of togetherness which the couple then, at least ideally, explores and discovers and learns to enjoy. They grow up into uh, their status. And so Paul says elsewhere in Ephesians 4 about us as Christians, speaking the truth in love, we grow up into him who is the head, 
Jesus Christ. So again, there's that status that the gospel confers on us and we grow up into it in our life in Christ. And we must say that knowing Jesus is is intensely personal. It must be something that we all as individuals appropriate. It can't appropriate. It can't be our parents' faith ultimately or our grandparents' faith or our church's faith. It is personal, but friends, it is not individualistic. And one of the things that struck me again going through this passage to prepare for this message is how much Paul and how quickly he links our salvation in Christ to the community, how we share this together. And we think about this in an age that is so individualistic, where spirituality is self-defining, it is self-oriented, it is self-serving. I recently read an essay uh, that was talking about how folks are trying to jettison church, in some cases synagogues, and they're looking for replacement for these um, institutions for spirituality in a spa. They're going to spas and trying to replicate some of what they had in church, but without all the, you know, (laughs) the doctrines and the gospel and the teaching of the Word of God. And there was one woman through, um, toward the end of the essay, who said this. Uh, She said, I technically used to go to church, (laughs) but it was just a place that I showed up. And now, the author says, she's a, by her own definition, a cafeteria spiritualist. And again, Paul is speaking into that kind of dynamic, and we face that today in our context. She said, a cafeteria spiritualist who picks and chooses which practices work for her. She said, I want to find God and know God in my own way. I don't want anyone to tell me the quality of God or how to worship or anything. I want all of that to be my own experience. Uh, One writer in the comments section said, go figure, this is all in L.A., okay? Uh, And I'm from L.A., I can say that, but... Uh, It's not just an L.A. thing. It is an American thing. It is the age that we are living in. And and it's nothing new. Paul was addressing this kind of cafeteria mentality among the Philippians. And he is saying that your faith must be incredibly personal, but it's also communal. A few weeks ago, I quoted somebody uh, who said, everybody who belongs to Christ belongs to everybody who belongs to Christ. And we need to see those connections as we go through this passage. Paul is talking about the joy of my union with Jesus, your union with Jesus, but our collective together union with Jesus. And so earlier in chapter 2, he spoke of having the same love united in spirit and being intent in one purpose. Well, Paul, Paul then immediately takes these kind of soaring truths And he applies them to what Christ has done for us in a very down-to-earth way. And what it means for us as a community. What it means for Christians as we relate to one another. He says in verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. 
So in other words, working out our salvation entails personal growth and holiness in prayer, in the disciplines that God gives to us. It also, it also means eliminating the things that weaken the body. And Paul's really practical, down to earth. He says, get rid of grumbling and complaining. The words here in Greek mean arguing that gives rise to dissension or or skeptical questions that gives, give rise to unproductive doubts. Now, it's good to ask questions, but there's a kind of murmuring and muttering that can wear on our fellowship and cause kind of a low-grade discontent and dissatisfaction with, with one's church and the way that we relate to each other. Uh, the Babylon Bee can sometimes be helpful <laughs> For what this might look like, and they had a headline years ago that said, uh, church with united in its name undergoes fourth split. Um, and, you know, we chuckle, but that's a real thing that happens in churches. A more current example was uh, elder pulls fire alarm to, de to delay vote on the new carpet. Uh, <laughs> so, in other words, what Paul is saying in today's terms is don't be like the American Congress. You see, we have the love of Christ that bonds us to him and to one another. He said earlier in chapter 1, stand in one spirit with one mind, side by side, not in opposition to each other, but side by side for the faith of the gospel. And again, he hones in on how the negativity can begin to affect us with this kind of low murmuring and muttering. There's a boomerang effect to negativity in churches and in families. Now, I want to speak personally here. Uh, I grew up at Hollywood Presbyterian Church. I mentioned being a person from L.A., and I spent my entire life there. I was in Hollywood a lot uh, because we had a very active, it was a large church, and uh, for the most part, the church was striving to be gospel-centered. It was explicitly that way. Uh, the word of life was preached there. I was converted there. I came to Christ there. I was baptized there. But spending 24 years there, or 22 years there, uh, I, you know, I was very involved in the church life. My father was on session uh, many times. In other words, he was part of the elder board many times. He was involved in other aspects of the church, uh, as was my mother. And as I went through this passage, I looked back, and I realized, uh, and I was at, at some point beginning to think about ministry. I was very involved in high school ministry and college ministry. And I realized as I went through this looking back that I never, ever heard my parents speak a negative word about our church, ever. And I grew up with that, friends. And I grew up loving my church. I grew up wanting to go to Sunday worship, especially in my latter high school years when Christ became real to me. You know, though my parents kind of knew how the sausage was made, so to speak, and I'm sure they had their issues at times with personnel, maybe with budget decisions, maybe with the music, maybe with the length of sermons, Maybe with the fact that the church was on television for the last 10 years while I was there, I'm, I'm not always sure what they thought of that. 
they did not let any negativity leak out toward their son. I grew up loving that place. And when I'd been back there two or three times in the last 10 years, folks, I have been in tears of, uh, uh, tears of gratitude, thanking the Lord, remembering my experience of meeting Jesus and loving his people and being loved by them in that church over three decades ago. Now, conversely, there is a, another side to this, and it's really what Paul is talking about in the negative way. I knew a woman in a, in a church, and she had a prominent role in the church. Uh, not this church, um, not that church, um, but she would often mutter about the church and its leadership, kind of this low-grade murmuring. And she would let her dissatisfaction be known to other leaders, sometimes to me. But sadly, and it was pretty apparent also to her kids and to their friends. And I watched over time uh, her daughter take on that attitude. I sensed it. And then I watched her daughter drift away from the church and then drift away finally from Christ. Now, at this place in her life, my understanding is she is an agnostic, if not an atheist. And there are always many factors that play in unbelief. We have to grant that. But I want to say from what Paul is saying here, grumbling and disputing, muttering and murmuring, murmuring Friends, they are radioactive. They poison ourselves and then others. And so Paul says that we work out our salvation in a positive way. And, and we want to say as leaders, when you have issues, we don't want you to murmur and mutter. We want you to talk to us respectfully, and we need to respectfully listen. And we come to the gospel. We come to the word of God. We see if those issues are essential. And perhaps if they're not, uh, we, we put our differences aside, and we see how is God working despite our different personalities, despite you know, the temperature of the building, <laughs> the color of the carpet, all these different things that we can disagree on, and more important things, we seek to maintain our unity and to remain incredibly positive about what God is doing in our midst. And so that's what we do. But then we come to the question, how do we do it? If we are going to change, then Paul says that God has to be on the move in our lives, and he is. He says, work out your salvation for because God is at work within you. God's powerful and effective energy are operative in and among our lives and our fellowship. One writer has said that uh, we can sum it up this way. You can work out your salvation because God is at work within you. God works, therefore you can work. God works, therefore you must work. And see, when we begin this whole way of thinking about these issues from a perspective of human autonomy, as though we can save ourselves, as though we can grow and, and be sanctified on our own, it doesn't make sense. But Paul is saying, no, this is God who is operative among you. 
And so we preserve, or rather we persevere because of God's preserving power. And when we say, I don't feel like I can, what does Paul says? Well, you can't. <laughs> but it is God who works within you. And then if we're honest, we say, well, sometimes I don't want to. What does Paul say? It is God who wills to work according to his good pleasure. He gives us the desire and the power to do what pleases him so that it might become our pleasure as well. The writer Dallas Willard once said, the Christian life is what you do when you learn that you cannot do anything. And in that place of helplessness, God works in and through you. He gives us the desire to do what pleases Him. Now, God had promised this back in Ezekiel in chapter 11. He said through the prophet that someday in the new covenant, I will give my people an undivided heart. And I will put a new spirit within them. I will remove from them their heart of stone. In other words, they're grumbling, they're murmuring, they're muttering, their divisiveness, their anger, their disobedience, and I will give them a heart of flesh. And then what? And then I will follow, they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You see, Paul is saying that the spirit has implanted the ongoing work of God in our lives so that we might and will grow up to be like our head, Jesus Christ. So God is at work so that we might work out our salvation. And then we come to the why. Why do we do this? Well, Paul tells us to follow Christ's pattern so that we might be blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and twisted generation in which we shine as stars in the world. Now, friends, you know this, this fallen world is spiritually darkened by so many things, by crooked sexuality, by envy, by pride, and according to what Paul is saying here, by griping, by warring, by dissensions, by hatreds, and I don't need to read headlines to you this week to tell you what that is. We know that. The world is so, so broken. And Jesus says to us in Matthew, you are the light of the world. And a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. And so let your works shine forth that God might be glorified. And again, we are facing so much darkness. But when do stars shine brightest? When do you see the stars? When you're up in the mountains against a dark night sky. And so Paul is saying the light of God is intended to shine through us. But again, it is not our strength. It is not our inner light. Because we are fallen and we are corrupted people in and of ourselves. But it is as we hold on to the word of life, as we hold on to Christ, as we hold on to the gospel that the light of God shines forth through us, 
And people, as they look at all the divisiveness and hatred in the world, hopefully see in the church that we are learning to love not only Christ, but each other. They see unity, ideally, and in that they see the work of Christ. Now Paul also gives another reason that we are to work out our salvation, and it's very interesting. He wants his labor for them, his labor for them and God's power to be approved on the last day, he says. He says, I don't want to have run in vain. I want to finish the race of faith. And Paul says, if I have to pour out my life for you as a drink offering on an altar, like wine poured out on a table, then that's what I will do. But he says that in his suffering, he rejoices to see their progress, their partnership with him in his suffering as he rejoices in their growth in Christ. And friends, as we look at our experience 2,000 years later, in a sense, we experience this as well. Over the last 25 years, and, and I know other leaders in our church feel this way about you, as we share the gospel with you, as we teach, as we reach out to you, we are overjoyed to see your growth in Christ. And I know you are overjoyed to see one another's growth in our community groups and women's Bible studies at the various events that we have. This week at Theology on Tap, one of the best things will be to hear from one another our insights about the truth of Christ. And so we encourage each other as Paul encouraged them, as they encouraged Paul, and as they share in joy, so we share in each other's joy. You know, I want to circle this all back here as I conclude uh, by once again looking at the pattern of Christ. That's what Paul is dealing with here. And I want to read to you a reflection uh, from a theologian named B.B. Warfield, who was a theologian at Princeton Seminary in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And this is what he said about the pattern of Jesus for our lives. He said, Jesus was led by his love for others out into the world to forget himself in the needs of others, to sacrifice self once for all upon the altar of sympathy. Self-sacrifice brought Christ into the world and self-sacrifice will lead us, his followers, not away from, but into the midst of people toward one another and toward the world. He says, wherever people suffer, there, will be, we, uh, there we will be to comfort. Wherever people strive, there we will be to help Wherever people fail, there we will be to uplift. Wherever people succeed, there we will be to rejoice. Self-sacrifice means not indifference to our times and our fellows, he says. It means absorption in them. It means forgetfulness of self in and for others. And Paul says we follow this pattern with fear and trembling. That means it's a joyous, but it's also a very serious matter as we work out our salvation, following the pattern of Christ, because God is at work within us. 
We do this with fear and trembling because the stakes are high. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great work for us in Jesus upon the cross that reconciled us to yourself and, and also therefore to each other. And we pray that we would work out our salvation in particular in our communal life, in our friendships, in the fact that we are brothers and sisters. And God, when we have our disagreements or different styles or different preferences, different personalities, different ages and perspectives, we come from different generations, help us to find our common ground on the gospel in Christ. Help us to stand side by side for the cause of the gospel. Father, in this dark and divisive age where right now there, we are seeing so much heartache and hatred and animosity and hurt and separation, God, we pray that we would fight against that, that we would, as your people, express our unity that we already have, that we would grow up into our head, Jesus Christ. We also ask, Father, that you would help us to shine as stars in this world, that we would be your lights because we belong to the light of the world. And so God, help the church not to hide away from the world, not to put a cover over ourselves, but to let your light shine. Forgive us, God, when we have retreated we pray that we would live out this passage before the watching world in a way that's humble, full of charity and conviction and repentance and kindness toward one another and toward even our enemies out in the world. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.